Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette, and this is episode 21. We're two Latinas from working-class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our case segment, we will discuss Lassiter versus Department of Social Services, the case that held that due process does not require counsel in a proceeding to permanently revoke someone's parental rights in North Carolina. For our current events segment, we'll discuss the Trump administration plans to deny green cards, aka residency, for immigrants who have received benefits like Medicaid. And for our deep thought segment, we'll discuss the often under-discussed topic of soft office skills and professionalism. Okay, but before we do any of that, Yvette, how are you? I haven't seen you since before graduation. How have you been? We haven't even done an episode together in so long. I miss mm-hmm. you. I know, I miss you too. I've been good. Uh, I've just been kind of overwhelmed with work. Um, I'm in a difficult spot because... There's so many people to help. There's so many people facing deportation proceedings, and it's been a little difficult for me to decide which cases to take on and the extent to which I'm going to provide people services. Um, it's been kind of hard to draw boundaries. Um, yeah. And not and not feel guilty about it. Like, even today, I was like, shoot, like, maybe I should work on this motion. You know, I was going to, like, maybe I should finish blue booking it before tomorrow. And I was like, no, I, I want to have a life outside of work. And I'm the person that needs to assert that for that to really happen because my boss is never going to tell me to work less. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, and this project brings me joy. So I made time for it today. Yeah. And I hear you like in terms of just feeling guilty, but it, I, it's just so important because you're right. Like no one's ever going to tell you like, oh, you know, you're working too much. Like, yeah. because if they can get more out of you, I think they always will want to, especially when you're yeah. delivering such high quality representation. Mm-hmm. But it's so, I, I don't know. I just try to remind myself and I'm not great at it, but I do try to remind myself like, actually I'm getting much better at it. I've been saying no to a lot, but uh, like reminding myself that if I'm not well, like my work product is going to suffer. And that is, like, fairly persuasive to me because I, like, yeah, I definitely always want to produce good work product. Yeah, I just think I'm actually so much more efficient when I actually take breaks. Like, yeah. you know, like, a lot of people in my office take stuff home after work, but I've just found that if I really focus from 8.30 to 5, then my stuff gets done. And I want to keep it that way. I applaud you for that because I just like from my internships, I already know that I'm someone who can't work like I can work in four hour increments like really well. Like when I when I'm working on something from like two to four hours, that's like when I'm really in my groove and whatnot. But if I try to work longer than that, I just feel like I'm slower and I'm less focused, like things can distract me more. So I am like definitely the kind of person where it's like the lunch break is important. And then just like yeah. going out and taking a walk for like 20 minutes at like three o'clock is important. And so I feel like I'm constantly going to be someone who takes home work because I like took an hour off to like go have a nice long lunch and like come back more focused. But so, well, that'll be a problem for the future, though. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Cynthia? 
I'm doing really good. I'm with my family in Los Angeles. My cousin is getting married this Saturday. So oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The, that's yeah. so exciting. Yeah, by the time this comes out, my cousin will be married, and I am officiating the wedding, so... Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's such a big deal. I know. I'm so excited. I even got, like, I usually don't do my nails, like, with acrylics. I always just do gel just because they, like, I'm not used to it, and I don't like how my nail feels thin afterwards. But this time, I was just like, I'm officiating. I'm doing a toast. Like, I'm going to be... This is my, like, cousin who's, ba- like, closer to me than my sisters are. Like, no shade, but she just is. I was just like, I am <laughs> Your going... Your sisters don't hear this. <laughs> well, they know, though. Like, it's not hidden. Like, her it's and not I... a secret. Like, this is maybe TMI, but I kid you not, like, her and I, when we were little, we just spent so much time together that we would like I would need to pee and then she would need to pee or she would need to pee and then I would need to pee and we only had one bathroom growing up of course so we literally when we were little we would just share the toilet like that's how close we are you know (laughs) that's so cute cute and like so cute you could fit together (laughs) I know I well I guess you were really little yeah yeah I mean I think we did it until maybe like age four or five I can't remember but like that's just like a memory we both have like of going to be together and so it's just like I was just like I'm going all out for this wedding and all my other cousins are coming into town and I have a bunch of family from Mexico here and so I I'm moving to Nashville on Sunday and I know it's going to be hard to leave but I'm also really excited about Nashville so I'm doing good doing really good right now that's good and I'm excited to visit you in Nashville yes I've never been yes that'll be fun uh Thanksgiving okay so let's get into our case for this week, Lassiter versus Department of Social Services. So just as an intro, the case was decided in 1981, and it came out of the state of North Carolina. So the procedural posture for the case is that the trial court decided not to appoint counsel, uh, and we'll get into what they were appointing counsel for. And then the Court of Appeals of North Carolina agreed that no counsel was required, and then the Supreme Court didn't want to look at the case, so it went to the Supreme Court. Okay, so the facts of the case. I'm going to go by year because it, it like goes lengthy. So in 1974, Abby Lassiter, who was the, the, yeah, the plaintiff in the case, she had a child, um, William. And the the case mentions that it was out of wedlock, and I I just like to include that because I think it'll it'll make sense later. So it's not a criminal case. So it's she's a plaintiff, right? <laughs> Wait, she was the. Are you saying she was the plaintiff because this case was about whether or not she had right to counsel? Yes. And this wasn't like it wasn't the original termination proceeding. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Even in. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, I see I see what you mean in the sense that, like, the Department of Social Services brought the action against her, so in that way it mm-hmm. seems very, like, prosecutorial. Oh, I think it's called respondent, respondent. Okay. When it's a civil proceeding, yeah, because that's what, that's what we say our clients are. In the case, I feel like I remember them talking about Department of Social Services as a respondent, but that might be just because at this point it was Abby who was, like, appealing and so right. it was DSS who had to respond. Uh, but yes, so <laughs> let's keep going through this. It'll make more sense, I promise. So, so she had the child out of wedlock. And then in 1975, the district court of Durham County, which where I lived last summer, 
found that William was a neglected child, and so they transferred him to the custody of the Department of Social Services for the county. So in 1976, Abby was convicted of second-degree murder and began serving her sentence, which was a 25- to 40-year sentence. And then in 1978, so about two years later, DSS petitioned the court to terminate Abby's parental rights. And DSS is just Department of Social Services. So they asked the court to have Abby lose her rights as a parent, so no longer officially be uh, legally William's mom. So the reasons that they alleged was that Abby had not contacted William since December of 1975 and had willfully left him in foster care. Yeah, so I, which is like very absurd because she was incarcerated, right? So that's why she hadn't contacted William. Yeah, and there's also, so there's the grandmother who plays a role, um, and we'll get into it a little bit more, but it was part of that, but her other, she had three other children, so William was the mm-hmm. youngest, and her three other children were staying with the grandmother, and so whether or not the grandmother could take William was actually a disputed fact at the hearing, which I'll like kind of get into. But I just feel like this, the reasons alleged in the petition are so kind of, well, like not contacting him since December 70, 1975. Like, I feel like, okay, that's a little easier to prove exactly what they mean, but like willfully left them in foster care. I feel like that's just such an abstract ground on which to petition. Yeah. So I just wanted to quickly note that this, so I guess the facts of this case are a little bit more complicated because there was this question as to whether or not a grandmother could take in the kids. And there's also, I guess there was a factual dispute as to whether or not she had willfully left him in foster care. But this same type of conflict of like, a person incarcerated or detained having their parental rights taken away is actually a common issue. And it's something that I've actually already seen come up in my work. Because if someone is detained for immigration purposes, DSS or whatever the equivalent body is in that state will move to terminate parental rights and they'll claim like so they'll like bring this charge against the person who's detained and when they don't show up for court because they're detained they'll claim that they abandoned their case and it's really scary because the DSS proceedings move much quick much more quickly than immigration proceedings do yeah so it's so it's very common that someone's DSS hearing will come up before their immigration hearing or before their bond hearing yeah and I like I hear you because that's it's the same thing in like my area of law which is like criminal law where if you're incarcerated for you know pen like pending trial you know which can take like depending on the charge can take a really long time like yeah, in some places years. I know last summer in Durham, I think, like, if you're charged with murder in Durham and you can't afford bail, like, you're going to be in pretrial detention for about, like, two and a half to three years. And, like, you you haven't been found guilty or anything. So, like, during that time, it's the same thing. And so I know some, not, I don't even want to say it because it's not most, but, like, there are a couple public defender's offices where they have a family law, like, attorney to be able to help the Mm. clients with that. But I don't Mm -hmm. even want to mention it because that's not the common case, you know? Like, that's not usually the case. Like, if you're incarcerated in something, like, someone's taking your kids or somebody can't take care of your kids, like, that's, everything you just described applies to people who are charged as well. Yeah, this isn't the norm either, I don't think, across immigration nonprofits. But I really appreciate that my office has social workers who are able Mm. to step in whenever we see this issue and we're able to flag it to them so that they can step in. That's Yeah, that's really... Yeah, so important to note, like, this... We're talking about the late 1970s, but this is, like, still the case of, mm-hmm. you know, just how difficult it is for, for parents, especially single parents. Okay, 
So still in 1978, so the DSS petitions the court, right? And then there's a hearing. And so Abby is brought from prison and the hearing starts with a discussion about whether Abby should get more time to get legal assistance. Uh, but the court uh, determined that she had ample opportunity to obtain counsel. And Abby at the hearing, she didn't claim to be indigent. And so there was no counsel appointed. And I just want to mention like the facts that I'm going over right now are just very much like just come from the main opinion of the case. Um, that was so there's more facts in the dissent, which I'll get to later. So just keep that in mind. But these are just from like the main opinion. So at the hearing, the DSS social worker testified and Abby cross-examined the social worker, but most of her questions were not allowed because they were actually arguments. And so, and they actually write in the opinion, like the judge explained several times with varying degrees of clarity. So meaning oh that God. it wasn't always clear why he wasn't allowing Abby to make her argument, you know? So mm -hmm. <laughs> that was happening while she was trying to cross-examine. I think this is an example exactly of why counsel would have been good in such an instance, right? Because I think part of the justification for why counsel wasn't needed was that this was a termination proceeding for parental rights and there's nobody that knows the parent-child relationship better than the parent. But that's not like the factual issues about the parent-child relationship aren't why counsel would be beneficial. Counsel is beneficial because you, if you're someone who hasn't gone to law school, you won't necessarily know the meaning of a leading question. You won't necessarily know like what yeah. what form of question you should ask like, i know exactly what the judge is saying when he's saying that there are arguments like you can't you basically saying you can't ask leading questions you can't supply the answer in your question but that's something that you learn in a trial advocacy class that's something that takes skill and practice and it's very absurd that you would be taken from a prison cell to a courtroom and then be expected to understand how to be a trial attorney yeah agreed we should talk a little bit more about like the importance of counsel because yeah i i completely agree with everything you said Okay, so then at the hearing after the social worker testified, Abby testified via questions from the judge. So the judge was asking her questions and she answered and that was kind of like, that was her testimony. Uh, where normally if she had her attorney, she would have been questioned by her attorney. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, Abby's mother testified. <laughs> Abby, I don't think she cross-examined her, but I can't be sure. But I just know that that's during the mother's testimony is when the they were trying to say that she couldn't but then she was just like wait i never said that i couldn't so that's where the factual yeah. dispute came up and so okay. the court found abby willfully that willfully failed to maintain concern or responsibility for william's welfare and they terminated her parental rights so then this goes up to the supreme court so we've alluded to what the question in this case was already but just to spell it out really clearly the issue was whether or not due process under the 14th Amendment requires that states appoint counsel for a mother or a parent in a parental rights termination action because he or she is indigent. And indigent just means can't pay. And basically the underlying theme of this case is what is required for this proceeding of termination of parental rights to be fundamentally fair procedurally. A big theme always under due process, 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so the holding was that a right to appointed counsel is recognized to exist only where the litigant may lose his or her physical liberty if they lose the case. And this is um, actually from Gideon, which is a the case that you all, or like the, the other option that we we're going to have to talk about. And I find this argument very strange as a person who 
practices immigration law because then this would mean that counsel would be required in deportation proceedings, particularly in our current moment where basically almost everyone is detained and a lot of times for the whole duration of their case. And, you know, as you all most likely know, there's no recognized right to appoint counsel in deportation proceedings. And so even if you can't pay, you have to represent yourself, despite the fact that, of course, your physical liberty is at stake, you're detained. And the only current exception to this is folks with mental disabilities in the Ninth Circuit. And like technically, people do have a right to counsel in their deportation proceedings, but it's at no expense to the government. So it's not very meaningful. Yeah, we should go into that case because I know there's been several cases that that explain, well, that like have found there's no right to an attorney. And I'd love to go into that a little bit more. We should also do Gideon. So we'll have to add these uh, these cases to our list of cases to cover. Mm-hmm. And so the holding, they decided that whether or not due process calls for appointment of counsel is up to the trial court. That That's the case because the Constitution doesn't require it. At the time, 33 states and D.C. had a recognized right to counsel in termination proceedings, but the justices just characterized this as a wise public policy and not a constitutional requirement which I thought was very wild because it just demonstrates how much states can vary and what procedural protections they provide for folks. Yeah, and I wanna do want to note that like they left the, the court that Abby was first in, was just like, you know what? We are going to appoint counsel for you. Like, you, you get it. Like, leaving up that up to the trial court is, I guess, better than saying, like, no counsel is ever required. But yeah. I just, I don't know. I just guess it's kind of shitty because I can imagine how a trial judge goes around deciding like who deserves counsel who really needs it I don't know I just feel like having them make that decision really leaves up for a lot of prejudice you know like who do they find sympathetic and who do they find who do they prejudge as already being like probably not a good parent or whatever and that they don't even need to appoint counsel you know so just like that like it's better than saying no counsel required but just leaving it up to the trial court I think was just irresponsible of the court because like the dissent gets into it so we'll get into it but I just I feel like you're reading the opinion and you think they're gonna go one way but you know what the outcome is and so it's just I think this is one of the ways where they like made it so that they don't feel guilty about what they Mm -hmm. decided yeah I agree I just don't think that something as important as this should be so arbitrary you know like and especially considering like the different general political views in different areas of our country I don't know I'm thinking about this more and more seeing how Arizona immigration courts work in comparison to San Francisco immigration courts and I I think it's bullshit that just depending on luck where you are geographically can make all the difference yeah yeah do you want to oh should we get into the Matthews v Eldridge factors yeah so well just like just to be clear so there was a dissent by black men which justices brennan and marshall joined and stevens also dissented and i just like to point that out because i just i every time there's a dissent by with marshall or like he writes it i just get really excited uh so we're gonna cover the dissent because marshall joined a dissent so we have to so the test applied the rule that they applied to this case was the matthew versus elridge factors which we've discussed before so like if you've listened to all our episodes you're going to become a real like expert on these factors (laughs) so the three factors are there's a private interest in this case abby's there's the state interest in this case department of social services and then the third factor is the risk of error and i just want to note that this like balancing test to kind of figure out um whether someone needs counsel or not this is different in civil cases versus criminal case so this is a civil case and as like a criminal case 
also triggers the Sixth Amendment, which is like the right to the accused in criminal proceedings, which like goes into like the right to confront your accuser and cross-examine them. And so just I just wanted to make sure that folks knew that criminal cases are different from civil cases. And right now we're just talking about civil, specifically yeah. parental right termination. Do you want to get into a little bit of the reasoning of that and like why the yeah. court made this decision? Yeah, so they noted that, you know, it depends on the case. In one case, a trial court may find that a balancing of the eldritch factors does overcome the presumption against the right to appointed counsel and require the appointment of counsel, but in others it might not. And so it really does make more sense to have the trial court make that decision. The state argued that, which I mentioned earlier, that the parent is an expert in their relationship with their child, so they're already well-informed. And they claimed that the termination hearing doesn't have difficult issues of evidentiary or substantive law. I, But I've, just, I've really never encountered a case where there wasn't some kind of difficult substantive law at issue, but... That's what they claim, and they made the argument by saying that DSS themselves is, are sometimes represented at termination hearings by sh- social workers instead of by lawyers. Which, like, the flip side of that is that they're usually <laughs> represented by lawyers, right? Like, it's like, sometimes we don't even have a lawyer, but it's like, okay, bitch, but what you're really saying is that most of the time you use a lawyer, <laughs> But also, like, I don't know, I also just find that kind of disrespectful because I'm not really into the idea that, like, only lawyers can lawyer. Like, I I bet you that the social workers that were resenting DSS were very well versed in the relevant family law. No, yeah. yeah. As opposed to someone like, like Abby, who had no background in it at all. Yeah, no, but I just like that they use, like, oh, we sometimes use our social workers instead of lawyers as if like that proved that you don't need a lawyer when most of like, cause there's what they're saying, what they're not saying is that they usually use lawyers, which just like cuts against them. So it's just like, I just find this a like almost like close to lying. It's just like, why would you even make this argument? Like that just seems so unethical to me. Like you're trying to say that you semi clever framing. Yeah. It's yeah. So that I just like to point that out. Like, but I agree with you. Like if, if we could have a system where you didn't need lawyers at all, like I that would be better. We should have that system. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Okay, what else did the court go through? So they explained why they felt satisfied that with the procedure that Northern that North Carolina used. And so they felt that in this case, the balancing didn't overcome the presumption against appointed counsel because the petition to terminate parental rights contained no allegations of neglect or abuse meaning that there was no risk to Lasseter of being criminally charged as a result of these proceedings. No expert witness testified, so the level of complexity wasn't very high. The case presented no specially troublesome points of law. The presence of counsel would not have made a determinative difference. I okay, I don't really know where they were <laughs> going with that one. Um, Laster declined to appear at the 1975 child custody hearing. I don't understand why that would be a factor in an analysis about whether or not she was deserving of counsel. And Laster's failure to make an effort to contest the termination proceeding was without cause. Yeah, so I feel like you already kind of got into it, but like getting into like how reasonable is their reasoning, I was just like, there's so many flaws in what they're reasoning. Yeah. Like, for example, so many of the reasons that you just listed get to like level of complexity. And it's just like, mm-hmm. well, how are they judging this? Like, because what seems fairly straightforward to them can actually be really confusing and intimidating to an individual, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. having to talk in court itself is 
really difficult for a lot of law students, let alone someone who's maybe like doesn't enjoy public speaking, has never wanted to do public speaking, and then all of a sudden you're in a cold courtroom with a judge who maybe probably doesn't seem friendly and yeah so it's just like how are they judging what is level of complexity that already just seems like flawed Mm -hmm. and then with them saying like oh the presence of counsel would not have made a difference it's just like that's absurd yeah the presence of counsel always makes a difference like there are studies that look at the statistics in immigration cases for like the difference in outcome based on counsel and like i know i wish i remembered the numbers off the top of my head but they're very stark like it's the difference between like a 14 percent acceptance rate and like a 75 percent acceptance rate yeah without counsel versus with like it's very stark Yeah, and, like, they had the proof necessary in front of them. Like, they saw that many of Abby's questions, like, quote-unquote questions, were dismissed and not allowed because they were actually arguments and not questions. Mm -hmm. And, which it's, like, that should have signaled to them, like, hey, maybe she would have, you know, she would have actually been able to cross-examine. She basically wasn't able to cross-examine. And I, like, this really struck me because I personally saw this when I, like, I went once with my mom. Um, her friend was like getting a divorce and as part of it, like they were doing a custody proceeding and it was just so like, I, this was before I started law school and I just had to like sit there and not, nobody else could speak, obviously. Like it's just a attorneys. And in this case, my mom's friend and like just seeing her struggle with like, you know, even like courtroom etiquette, like being able to stand or move or like using the mic or who, like, when it was her turn and when it wasn't her turn. Like, all that was just, it just left her so flustered. And she, like, she, my mom's friend just, like, constantly, like, had tears in her eyes, you know? And it was mm-hmm. just so frustrating. And, like, in the end, like, things worked out for her, so I'm happy. But, like, having seen her go through that, I like, I can just not understand this, this reasoning. This is, counsel always makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, I I get nervous when I'm going into court and I went to law school. Yeah. Yeah. It's absurd to expect people, especially without the formality of court, to expect people to feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And then I also just wanted to mention, like, when I was reading their opinion, I was really, as somebody who does, like, who cares a lot about the rights of a person charged with crimes and and who are convicted of crimes. You know, Berger, who writes the opinion, he's he definitely has judgment on Lassiter and her actions. And he thinks it's just like it just seems unreasonable for him to judge her because his argument, his just like judgment of her is so shallow. So he like writes dismissively and he says like he describes her like I'm quoting a mother under lengthy sentence for murder who showed little interest in her son. It's like, was that really necessary? Was it really necessary as you to add all those, that description to the word a mother? It just, it just bothers me that they clearly Berger had very little, if any sympathy for Abby. Yeah. And that's why like, just to reiterate again what we've been saying that's why it's terrible to leave such an important decision to a trial court to be made on a case-by-case basis because then prejudices like this come in like she's incarcerated she committed a crime like she doesn't care about her parental rights so she doesn't need counsel yeah this and that's why like i'm saying it's confusing because like okay for example in the opinion you know they talk about how like the north like the North Carolina Court of Appeal found that like even though this state action is invasive of individual privacy the invasion is not so serious or unreasonable to compel us to hold that appointment of counsel for indigent parents is constitutionally mandated which like doesn't make sense and then 
Berger and like the majority, they do recognize that a parent's right to a children is like a very important interest. And they also like, they do write in the, Berger does write in the opinion that the process must be overwhelming and disoriented and the parents are likely to be people with little education. It's so confusing like how they could decide that you don't need counsel. And that's actually the dissent. Do you want to say anything else or should we just get into the dissent? No, we can just get into the dissent. Okay, so the main point of the dissent is that the court recognizes the mother's interest as a commanding one and finds no countervailing state interest of even remotely comparable significance. So the obvious conclusion would have been to find due process requires an attorney for an indigent parent. And they also like talk about how the procedure that North Carolina has is a very like trial type hearing, which is important language that's studied in administrative law. Ten, so I just want to flag that. And in the North Carolina procedure, like the rules are of evidence are in force. There is a judge who's being the decision maker and the state has counsel. And so all of this is, quote, like distinctly formal and adversarial. And one thing that I always really appreciate the sense for is that's where you usually get more facts that the majority leaves out that are important. So they mm-hmm. the dissent actually goes into the human experience of Abby. So, like, how feasible it was to get legal counsel while imprisoned, what her actual knowledge of her rights were, which were very, was very little, very minimal, and her desires as a mother, you know, and they note that the judge at the trial court level was impatient with her and, like, on the record expressed his disbelief at her answers, which is completely unprofessional and not allowed. And then the dissent goes into how weak the state's case was. Like they say, like there was a lot of the decision and a lot of the evidence admitted was hearsay. Uh, There was no like nothing for nothing from the agency's record that was introduced into evidence. And they go into all the different defenses that Abby could have brought to make her point. Uh, And then they (laughs) one thing that I really liked about the dissent and I recommend a read if anybody's interested is that before ending like one of the last sentences the, the they note that how earlier they just released a case where they found that due process grants a father state paid blood grouping test to disprove paternity and they're just like it's interesting that we recently decided that a father like a state needs to pay for the blood test for a father to be able to disprove his paternity not even to be able to prove just to disprove paternity like a state has to pay for that but in this case we're not saying the state needs to pay for an attorney so i just like that because it was like major shade and i'm a fan of shade i'm just so over the misogyny like oh it's more important for a father to disprove paternity most likely so that he won't have to make child support payments but whether or not a mother gets to keep her child is not as important yeah yeah and i i just very much like the court is usually not this self-aware so that i appreciate that in this (laughs) dissent in this one instance they were Mm self-aware and i guess just to close i kind of wanted i know we've gone long on this but i haven't gone to law school in a long time so i'm geeking out so i kind of want to talk a little bit about like punitive and punishment because you know chief justice Berger writes separately I guess somebody else wrote the main opinion. Sorry, misspoke earlier. But okay, so Chief Justice Berger writes separately just to argue that the determination proceedings are not punitive to the parent, but protective of the child's best interest. And so, like, 
I just wanted to get into that a little bit because that's such a common refrain that we hear throughout cases. I think this is an insane argument, and I would like to see him make that same argument if his own children were being taken away. And I like we mentioned this earlier that was noted in the majority opinion, but I just think it's very strange because the right to parent your child in the way that you see fit has been outlined in multiple Supreme Court cases. I forget the exact ones, but they're ones about like whether or not you're able to teach your child a second yeah. second language. No, I remember going through them. I think we were in that class together. Oh yeah. Wait, what class was that? Fourteenth Amendment. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, I took that class. Yeah, we took that. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think, always forget I took that class. <laughs> I, but yeah, it was not a forgettable class for me for multiple reasons. But yes, I could see why <laughs> it's best oh. to not think of it. But so, yeah, I just wanted to point out, yeah, like what you said, this is clearly punitive. And this, ex- like what you were mentioning earlier, is exactly the same conversation that's had in immigration cases where it's like, deportation is not a punishment you know it's not punitive it's and so they try to make this argument over and over where it's just like this seems silly and shallow like if you were the person living this of course this is like punitive and punishment like this like in this case specifically it's like the department of social services is bringing an action against you to take something away from you so it's just it's just that just seemed really shallow. I have nothing else to say about this case. I think we've said it all. But any last words on this? No, just the this idea that it's not punitive is a legal fiction. And I've had a client like who was being in the process of deportation because of a criminal conviction. And he was like really confused at why that was the case because he was like, I did time for that already. I don't get why I'm here now. And I think that's the best summation of how this is obviously punishment. Yeah, I agree. Let's leave it at that. Okay, so for current events this week, We wanted to talk about the new disqualification for residency on the basis of using certain state welfare programs. So just to kind of get in quickly into what happened. And we'll post articles and handouts on our website on cerebronas.com that like for one, like one of them was created by an NGO that I found helpful. So we'll post some of resources on the website. So there is already currently a public charge disqualification for various immigration benefits, but the definition is currently narrow. And so the Trump administration, they want to expand that definition, right, Yvette? Yeah. Uh, They want to expand it such that immigrants would need to provide extensive evidence of their economic history and economic prospects in order to prove that they wouldn't be likely to become a public charge. And what would occur is that this would grant USCIS, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services officers, huge amount of discretion in denying an application because they feel that the applicant would not be able to support their family without government assistance, or for example, wouldn't be able to pay for their pre-existing condition without government health care. And, you know, I'm sure that we can all imagine how this would open the door for racial profiling, given how welfare is framed and talked about in this country. Yeah, and I do want to note that this expanding the definition would not apply to some, like, quote-unquote, protected groups, like refugees, asylees, and survivors of domestic violence. 
so but just because those protected groups are excluded i i still want to point out that this like public charge is still very very racially charged and so we'll get into that a little bit more but there is like some protected groups that are that this doesn't apply to yeah, but I will note that like one of the huge benefits of refugee and asylee status is that you can eventually adjust to get to become a legal permanent resident. Yes. So it would like greatly strip one of the biggest benefits of asylum. So at the heart of this new regulation is a change in how like the government looks at public benefits that an immigrant has already used or is likely to use. And so wait, do you want to get into the statistics though? <laughs> Um, yeah. So right now only cash benefits are considered in this analysis and benefits. So only 3% of non-citizens use cash benefits, but the new approach would include Medicaid, SNAP, which is food stamps, Section 8 and other housing benefits and subsidies for low-income earners in Medicare Part D. Yeah. And so that's just like such a much like broader group and something that's like medicare like people need medicare and like section 8 and other housing benefits it's like well we only need it because there's it's impossible there's no affordable housing and gentrifiers are everywhere but anyways so like the center for law and social policy they have a handout and i like the way that they frame it in their handout where they explain that like this policy change is basically asking immigrant families to make an impossible choice between meeting basic needs and keeping their families together in this country and it's important to note that a result of this will likely be a chilling effect where people will believe that in order to stay in the United States, they can't utilize any type of social welfare services. And these are things that are already occurring. People are hearing these rumors and are already nervous and feeling like they shouldn't be on any type of social welfare services if they want to stay here. Yeah. And I think this is just because like, okay, so for getting a residency right like if you're outside of the country and you're applying for residency in the united states you know you're likely not going to be using any social welfare programs from inside the united states so this to me is just very clearly evidently targeted at people living in the united states and just seems so in line with all the past efforts and current efforts to make the u.s like as unlivable as possible for immigrants which I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but I just find like such a horrible thing that we try to do, like make it so hard for someone in this country that they leave themselves like that just seems so inhumane and cruel to me. And I just feel like this is this is just part of that, you know, like part of that same strategy. Yeah, definitely. We wanted to get into the history of, you know, what even is a quote unquote public charge, um, because even though this new proposal expands that definition, it's been in federal immigration law for over a hundred years. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, actually, one of the oldest reasons for the U.S. to reject some uh, would-be immigrant was the suspicion that they were likely to become a public charge. That language was added to the Immigration Act of 1882 and was interpreted by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is like current DHS, as a requirement that immigrants show on arrival that they had $25 in cash. So that was how back then you would prove that you weren't going to be utilizing government services. Yeah, so just a public charge, if it's not clear already, is just like a person who may depend on the government as their, ma- as their main support source of support. And, but like, as you can imagine, like, this being in like, the such old language in our immigration law, 
public charge has like a really awful history and, and so like in the past you know it's been abused to keep out you know jews who were fleeing nazi germany irish catholic individuals um people who are part of the lgbtq community uh people with disabilities women who weren't married so like that's how public charge has been used you know to keep like certain populations out of the country like and public charge it's it's like it's along there's this phrase i I, I don't know if you remember our professor using it where like the list of undesirables which is like if you read old cases of immigration law or like other cases there's always like a list of people like okay we're going to protect this community and then like here's a list of all the people we're not going to protect so we don't care about and we'll have to cover a case to give this example later but Mm -hmm. that like that list of people we don't care about is like the undesirables like that's what our professor would call it And Mm -hmm. so, like, public charge was, like, the people who were considered undesirables were part of, like, you know, public charge was one of the way to keep them out. And so it's just awful that, like, I I guess just nothing is new and this is coming back and it's never left. But just, like, this language specifically, I'm like, of course the Trump administration would be expanding this definition. Like, how did I not predict this? Like, it's just like, of course. Yeah, and maybe people knowing the history will make them more sympathetic and realize what this is really about. Yeah, do you want to get into that, actually? Because, like, you know, this is, like, part of the discussion that I think we have in this country about whether immigrants are deserving or not. So do you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, so we just wanted to put some statistics out there to destroy some of these myths that are out there about how immigrants are undocumented immigrants are leeches on the country's economy so actually despite contrary views in the mainstream undocumented immigrants pay an average of 11.64 billion in state and local taxes a year yes that is true undocumented immigrants pay state and local taxes even if they don't uh, even if they don't pay the IRS, they're still paying state and local taxes. And on average, an undocumented individual has about 8% of their income go to taxes. And all immigrants, regardless of their status, will contribute approximately 80000 more in taxes than government services used over their lifetime. So like, there's all this outcry about the utilization of government services when actually, on the whole, immigrants contribute more in taxes than they use in their lifetime. Yeah, I love that you just like talked about this and that we are, you're including this because it's just the amount of times where you're like, oh, immigrants don't even pay taxes. Like that refrain is just so old. And it's just, yeah, I'm just this, this no longer needs to be an argument that people try to make. Yeah, because folks pay taxes and actually receive fewer benefits because they are non-citizens. Yeah. And just like under this, I wanted to talk about when you like you know, you, you propose this, like whether immigrants, you know, how they're seen as undeserving or whatnot. I just, it reminds me of the work that for a long time, um, I felt like a lot of the work that immigration activists had to do, like, for example, like with the dreamers was like prove Mm -hmm. their worth, right? Like prove their humanity. And like, in some extent, like prove their like Americanism, even though I hate using the word American because it's not specific to the United States. Anyways, um United States in. I know. I'm trying to bring that it's just like I feel <laughs> like that meme back. where people are just like stop trying to make United States in happen. It's not going to happen. Um for mean girls. Anyways, <laughs> we need to make it happen. So, 
I just felt like maybe we were getting to a place where, you know, we were getting past having to prove someone's humanity, but Mm. we, it's just like, I felt like the arguments and like the things that we were trying to prove and, and the organizing was getting a little more nuanced than that. And I feel like this kind of action just puts activists right back into that square where it's like your main job is to prove your humanity, prove your worth, like prove that you deserve us to care. And I just feel like we just need to be past that. Like we shouldn't be questioning anybody's humanity, you know, and we just so constantly do it. And I don't know. I just like have seen on Instagram how a lot of activists, you know, rightfully feel like I'm tired of having to prove my humanity. And I just, yeah, yeah, I completely understand that and agree. Yeah, it's just so hard when we don't, we can't even agree what term, you know, we can't even agree to use humane terms to describe folks. Like there's still people, I mean, in immigration law, uh, immigrants are referred to as aliens. And of course conservative people refer to undocumented immigrants as illegals yeah yeah so this just is more of that sadly okay something else i wanted to talk about sorry to just like (laughs) pivot but i wanted to talk about social welfare because this is all about social welfare and it's like the narrative around social welfare as we use it today is so negative and racialized right like yeah there's the there's the reagan popularized the idea of the welfare queen in the 80s yeah and exactly. so he he just like came up with this myth that there's like oh like women he was specifically black women black women yeah, yeah who uh, you like like have kids the gov- scam as- the government's yeah have children for the purposes of obtaining government services and also manage to scam the government services so much such that they're able to buy themselves like really fancy Cadillacs, which is like really absurd. Like the but amount people, people believe get such little monetary assistance. Like the you're barely able to get by even when you are on government assistance. So the fact that like yeah. this idea that you'd be able to accumulate enough money to buy yourself a fancy car is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. But this is so common. Like people in my own family, because like of course Latinx family members are also racist and problematic like we'll say this and i'll just yeah and i'll have to point out to them like you know people say the same thing about latinos and like latinx and that we use government so like social welfare in the same way and so i just like wanted to bring this up because i yvette like today right here right now we need to like start the work of reclaiming the phrase (laughs) social welfare (laughs) Because it's something that we should carry with, like, joy and pride. Like, when you think about the words themselves, like, the phrase, it's, like, such a beautiful thing. Like, welfare, like, social welfare, like, wanting to make sure that society and the members of our society are well and cared for. And it's something that we all do together. You know, it's, like, it's a community enterprise to make sure that our society is well. Like, how is that? Like, it brings tears to my eyes. And it's sad that we... Like, it's so, it's used so negatively and as a way to, like, further put down communities of color and, yeah, I don't know. So do you want, uh, yeah, do you want to get into a little bit about, like, the whether, like, social welfare is, like, a tradition in this country or not? Yeah, I'll just respond really quickly to what you're saying about how we shouldn't be ashamed of utilizing government services and say that my mom used WIC when I was a child. WIC um, is a program for low-income mothers and gives you um, 
it gives you money to to buy like stuff related for in, to infant care yeah like, like milk, milk. And eggs. <laughs> yeah so yeah and you know it resulted in me being the baddest bitch that i am so social welfare a plus yeah so also uh, and then just to get back to what you were saying earlier um I wanted to point out that there's this narrative that conservatives try and and put out there about how welfare is inherently un-American and that we've always been this country that cares about individualism and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. And it's actually just inaccurate um, because they claim that welfare didn't arise until the 20th or the 21st century. And that's just not true um actually welfare has been around in some form since the founding of the country and at the um in the first few decades and first hundred years of this country's existence the government would provide natural disaster relief to farmers when their crops were devastated by like freak uh, storms Mm -hmm. and at the time that that existed there wasn't this kind of racialized negative idea around it it was just kind of an expectation like oh there was a natural disaster that we couldn't control like of course we of course we would receive aid from the government yeah and it's again like because when you think about why why we have social welfare and what it's for like it's such a positive beautiful thing so i'm glad that you talked about the history and it just sucks that this country has only wanted to help white communities ever um it's tragic yeah but okay, so someone I wanted, asked us a question on Instagram. Yes, let's get into that. So the do you want to do what the question was? <laughs> they asked if submitting a comment actually matters. So the Trump administration is going to put up this proposal on in the Federal Register, and then the public has the opportunity to comment on it. Yeah, so this question gets into an administrative law, which I'm not an expert in, but I have studied. And so from what I remember my course under federal administrative law, um, DHS, which is the executive agency that's responsible for this proposal, has to review all the comments on this proposal of a rule change. And this, what they're proposing, is a rule change. But I want to be clear that not all executive action is a rule change, and so it's not Mm -hmm. subject to, like, this procedure. Mm -hmm. So once it's published in the federal register, like, like the comment can the public can submit comments and dhs like someone from the agency has to read all of them okay so about whether it actually matters or not so like i'm personally not hopeful about a comment changing the trump administration's mind but like i don't think they're going to read a comment and be like oh wow we didn't think of this like now that i realize how <laughs> racist like this is like we won't do it <laughs> But it is a way to, like, exert pressure, right? And if a lot of people do it, it shows that the administration is acting against a lot of people's will. And I think it's a personal decision whether you think the executive branch cares about what people think. But, like, there are a lot of good NGOs like CLASP that I mentioned earlier and, like, the National Immigration Law Center and others that are organizing to submit comments. So, I, you know, I think you should always support this work. And if you can submit a good like a comment you know go to protectimmigrantfamilies.org because it seems like folks are organizing that cool let's end the discussion there so for the deep thought segment i wanted to talk about office skills just because i 
want this podcast to also be a resource for first generation students and first generation professionals. And this was this has been something that has been I would say the hardest part of my own professional development because they're mostly because these rules are unspoken but they're very much real. These rules of etiquette around email writing and networking and mentorship and getting your work recognized in the office. And these things obviously impact first-gen students the most because we don't have anyone to consult about these skill sets. And I was able to gain some of these skill sets through a program called Mellon Mays that focuses on training students of color for going into academia. And so I wanted to share some of the stuff that they provided for me in those workshops. Yeah, and before you do, I just wanted to add that I like completely agree with you on the importance of this. Uh, posse, I've talked about Posse a lot, and Posse, I think, was the main reason why I like have been able to get these skills. Like, I can't even remember when like I started using them because Posse was there. Like, I hadn't even left high school before I was already a Posse scholar, and they were teaching us stuff like this. Like like how to interview and how to write an email and all these things. So this, I'm so grateful to Posse for giving me these skills. And so I completely agree with you that like, they're so important to have because they can really just like, it, it influence your different outcomes, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not a coincidence that both of us had access to programs that gave us these skills and that now we are where we are. Yeah. So in the email workshop that Mel and Mays did for us, they talked about the importance of tone and formality in emails. And, um, this was in the context of undergrad. So they said that like oftentimes a lot of students would write their professors very casually. And it's like, uh, I admire that confidence, but it's better to address your professor formally just to, to show them respect. It's it's irritating. It's It's a power thing, but you're not going to do yourself any favors by being like, hey, Jim, if you're not on that level yet with the professor. So always address your professor by their last name. So like Professor X and say dear or hello, not hey. Uh, and have an intro line like, I hope this email finds you well. I hope you're doing well. Uh, and then the sign off should include something like best or sincerely. And my partner has told me that, and so the, this is just an example of like how these random ass rules that come about. Like my partner told me that someone in his office has told him that the most junior person on an email thread should always be the last to respond when the response is something simple like, sounds great, thanks. I don't know if this is a thing other places, but he told me that's advice that someone gave him and now I follow it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that makes sense like on things where like, there's scheduling that needs to be done. Like, Hey, we need to have a meeting on this. Like when can folks meet? I always like, yeah. I'm, I'm sure either I reply f like quickly if nobody else replies just so that the like email doesn't get lost and just be like, yeah. Oh, anytime works for me. That works for y'all. Cause I'm usually the most junior person. And, yeah. but if, if like people reply with their availability fairly, like uh, quickly, like I always just reply at the end, like, yeah, that's, that works for me. Thank you for organizing, you know? Yeah. So exactly. that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I'm introverted and I don't like small talk. I find it boring and irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so like making him friends in the office can be actually hard for me. And so for other folks in, in a similar kind of boat, I force myself to eat in the office kitchen so that I can always catch up with whoever's eating at the time. And I'm trying to do things like um, there's a lawyer who in the office who I really admire and I want to ask 
uh, the, her the time for a coffee date. And for me, like the discomfort in small talk can be come from the feeling of of being fake. But like with this mentorship from the woman of color lawyer that I admire, like I just really want to talk to her and like hear about her journey because that's just a real thing that I want to experience. And so it comes more naturally to me that way. And so I think that like, I don't know, because I, I don't know if you agree, Cynthia, but I feel like this like feeling of, of being fake is something that a lot of a lot of first gen students like struggle with in, in regards to networking. And I think that that totally makes sense. And the way to get around it is just to realize like, that you you do genuinely want something to come out of this interaction, if if that's true, and if if that is the case, then you shouldn't feel shame about asking for it. Yeah, I think I agree. I agree with everything you said, and I also think that part of the discomfort with like asking for things or or having something that I like, you know, like when I need a letter of recommendation from a professor and I haven't talked to them in a long time or anything and I'm only writing to them because I need a letter of recommendation which like Mm -hmm. I guess I do with friends too sometimes you know like I haven't seen someone in a long time but like I need a favor or something Mm -hmm. um I like that I always get very uncomfortable when I'm asking for things I think we generally all of us and me if not all of us me particularly likes to be as self-sufficient as possible and the way I've gotten over that is just by constantly over and over being like getting to presence white people asking for things very unabashedly. So even though it makes me uncomfortable, I just like, I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going to ask for this because if I was a white male right now, like I would have already, like if I need one letter of recommendation, I would have already asked for a letter of recommendation and like demanded that I see it beforehand, you know, all these things. So just like having seen white people not feel the same kind of like uncomfort has made Mm -hmm. me get over it where it's just like I'm just gonna ask this person for coffee even though I think they're really busy and why would they have time to spend on me like because if I was a white male like I would think I deserved it and earned it so no yeah I I adopted this attitude when I was an undergrad because my suite mates were very entitled and they would say things like I'm paying my parents are paying so much money to be here like this professor needs to make time to meet with me or whatever and so I was like you know what I'm not paying somebody else is paying on my behalf but it's the same concept I am entitled to your mentorship I'm entitled to your feedback and also I'll say that like I know that it can still feel intimidating to reach out for all the reasons that you're saying, Cynthia, but, and so I think that people should keep in mind that actually, like, most people enjoy mentoring others, especially if you add a little flattery in there, because I, in my experience, like, people feel great when you do that because they're reminded of how much they've grown such that they can now be a mentor to somebody. I mean, I think I even feel that way about people, like... I like I love when like young Latinos reach out to me and and ask for advice about law school because it's like you know what I have accomplished things and I I do know I do have knowledge that other people would like to have and it it, it makes you feel important <laughs> it sounds silly but like really you you provide that for your mentor you make them feel important so just keep yeah. that in mind and if like if you if the person doesn't enjoy mentoring then they shouldn't be your mentor <laughs> yeah I agree. And then also, like, in the office, this is something I learned, like, dropping by someone's office just to chat is, like, not a weird thing. I always thought it would bother people, but it's not. And it's I've, it's because I eventually realized that, like, people, especially lawyers, are likely bored doing what they're doing. And they wouldn't, <laughs> and they wouldn't mind, like, a fun little chat for five minutes. Obviously, like, you know, feel it out. Sometimes people, if someone's door is closed, obviously they don't want to be bothered. 
Like if somebody's in the middle of a brief and they look really stressed, like that's probably not the best time to talk to them. But like, just, just know that like, you know, randomly walking by and saying hello and chatting for a, a little bit is not a weird thing to do. Yeah, I think like, if there's like a balance to strike here, it's like, be considerate, but bold. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and then I also like, I guess, kind of like to empower people more, just remember that you also likely have things you can bring to the table that would benefit them. Like it's not a unilateral relationship. And sometimes like, really sitting down and thinking about that concretely can also help you gain the initiative to reach out to people and it like I don't know it can be like oh maybe you have like context for contacts at a community organization that that professor would be interested in knowing more about or like maybe you have I don't know whatever like I think that when there's these power dynamics you think that it's always like a unilateral relationship where one person's providing the benefit to the other and most of the time it's just not like that so just reflect and realize that like you also have assets to bring to the table and that you shouldn't feel like you're just like leeching off of someone else's energy and knowledge um i mean i just wanted to share like so network is a lot less daunting when you have a specific goal in mind like today the board of my organization had a meet and greet i looked at the bias of people and i found two people i wanted to talk to a federal defender and a clinician from a university because i'm interested in both career paths and so like networking is a lot less daunting and like can be a lot less energy draining when you have a genuine reason you want to talk to somebody yeah, I agree. I, I guess, like, in response, like, well, not in response, but, like, just to add to everything you said, one thing that I really wanted to add to this is that sometimes, even though, like, someone seems like they would be a good mentor, don't ignore warning signs. Because, like, I think if I entertained a toxic mentor for longer than I should have because I couldn't distinguish between when I was uncomfortable because I was just like shy about asking for things or didn't want to waste her time or things like that. And, and when like she was just doing things to minim like diminish me and, you know, talk, you know, things that were actually toxic behavior, things that like I, she was a Latina um, who also went to Stanford, oh, no. uh, who like in her head, I think she thinks she cared about me a lot but a lot of the things she would say and a lot of the ways like she would respond to me were actually like <laughs> harmful like I think I've spoken before about like I used to have nightmares about this office and oh she was part of it and so yeah. I also you know like if your instinct and your gut is telling you like this person doesn't have your best interest at heart or this person is like taking out something they have that they need to deal with on you. Like I, you know, pay attention to that because not, you know, not everybody's going to be a great mentor. And I speaking for myself, like I'm sure I haven't always been a great mentor. And if I'm frustrated or something, maybe that comes across, I, you know, so I think it's just important to not, especially if you're like a first generation woman of color, like the world can be a hostile place and you don't have to constantly put yourself in the path of it. You know, if, if you're, if you're feeling like that's, it's going to be another hostile interaction. I agree with that. I think that's a really good thing to add. And 
one like the semi last point that I wanted to bring up is that I think it's very important for women of color to talk about your successes openly in the office and this is something that I'm actually still working on but because I used to do this thing where I would just like work quietly and expect to get recognized and that's just like not how it happens and so in order to like get recognized for promotions and whatnot you should casually share with your coworkers your victories it's kind of like oh when people ask like oh how are you doing you can be like oh I'm doing great like I'm so happy because I submitted this motion and it was granted and whatever and like you know it's just also it gives you something to say to your coworker when when they ask you that question which is something that is good for me <laughs> yeah I'm like stop talking to me I'm glad you mentioned this because this is an important part for like to talk about allies like hey allies like this is also yeah. important for you to do yes. like talk yes. about the successes of your colleagues yes. especially when they're women of color or people yes. of color or first generation and they're going overlooked like especially mm -hmm. if you're higher up or whatever mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. allies or even like best friends like this is like such a like best friend thing to do you know like I'm constantly like I like I love offices where someone will be like, I just want to send an email to everybody to let everybody know that yeah. so-and-so accomplished this. It's like, yes, yes, be that person. And I've noticed that a lot of times, like, people in my office send those emails out too, and I've noticed that it's like, like in my experience in general, I'll say I'm not just gonna, I'm not talking about my workplace right now specifically, but I've noticed a lot of times it's like white people being recognized in those emails. And so it's like I've actually, like, made it a point to – um, like encourage legal assistants of color in my office like we have this thing called happy thoughts where we all go around and like share like happy thoughts <laughs> which are basically like victories that we have and like I was like oh like you should share about the client you're working on that that got out on bond and she was like oh yeah I should you know and it's like because these things just like don't come naturally to us and so I think like if you're a woman of color and like you're mentoring people I think that's it's also something to remind them of and also be that person that's their that's their cheerleader yes agreed any more tips that you want to give yeah just like lastly so just I know that it's uh it's the hassle of finding cheap suits to wear um and so I just wanted to share like where I shop for my stuff and so Banana Republic has periodic good sales most of the time it is very 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 expensive but like once a year they have a like a crazy sale where their suits are like 85% off and I forget when that is but I think I bought mine over the summers and I don't know if it's like at the same time of year every year but that's something to just like google and try and figure out um and then also Nordstrom Rack is my favorite place to shop um and yeah I don't know it's it's cool because you get good quality stuff but it's very heavily discounted and then also okay this is something that took me a while to learn you should get your suits tailored especially if like you're short or whatever because like it just chances are that like a suit that you take off the rack isn't going to fit your body you know perfectly or the way that like it's supposed to look and so getting your suits tailored is actually like, a really common thing and I, I just didn't know that so I just wanted to let people know Thanks for all the tips, Yvette. I'm really glad we had this segment. Should we move on to recommendations? Yes. So recommendations. Um, my recommendation for this episode is uh, sisterspinster.net. I'll put a link up on the website and I'll feature it on the Instagram. So I went to an apothecary while I was in New Orleans. I was having like a rough day 
and um like I had like a ton of anxiety and I just knew like I would find something that would help me at an apothecary and they had this like little uh these little bottles of different drops by Sister Spinster that just like it's just like you put from like three to 13 drops like three times a day on your tongue I only do it like once a day sometimes like when it's been like particularly rough I've done it twice and like the one I have it's called the shrine and it just like helps me take longer deeper breaths like I've realized Mm. like that's kind of like the effect it has on me and I just find it like a pleasant taste and I find it very soothing I've shared it a lot with other friends and family members and they also really like it and it is pricey like the little bottle that I have was $20 but I just it's all natural products it's all just like essences and I really love it so I recommend it if anybody's in the market or looking for something and she has different products for different purposes so take a look awesome and I wanted to recommend a book communion the female search for love by bell hooks I, I don't understand why she uses the word female in the title and in the book and I will say that like some of like I think she tries to be queer inclusive but like a lot of her analysis does end up being a little heteronormative That being said, if you're a femme-identified person, I think that it's still a worthwhile read. Um, I'm actually reading it for the Tucson reading group that that I'm starting and that's going to have its first meeting on Sunday. So if people do end up reading, then I'd love to have you all DM and and hear your thoughts about it because I think it's a a useful read that just reminds women of the importance of self-love in a patriarchal society i really need to read more bell hooks so i yeah everything you recommend i always put it on my list this is definitely at the top <laughs> of my list yay okay and so finally we want to uh, ask people to follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at Cerebronas. we encourage you all to venmo us if you want to support us at Cerebronas. We also have a Patreon where you can become a monthly supporter. And the link to that is on our website, setevernas.com. And then finally, it's really great if you all rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us with visibility. And I always say I want to do this today. I'm actually going to do it. I wanted to read a comment or a review that I found really sweet. And we wanted to give this person a little special shout out. So this is Julia845. She writes, this podcast is awesome. It touches on topics that a lot of Latinas encounter and discusses law through a critical race lens. As a Latina lawyer, even in New York City, our perspectives and work are often undervalued and not visible. Through these episodes, I feel a sense that there is a larger community of Latina lawyers doing public interest work with on-point analysis. Thank you, Yvette and Cynthia. Super That's so sweet. cute. Thank you. And rate and review us, and maybe we will read your review on our next episode. Yvette, it was so nice to catch up with you and talk to you finally after so long. I know. I missed our traditional episode format. Yes, I know. More full episodes to come, everyone. Bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who it is, son? Hey, yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't.